I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me is one of my Black classmates, John Woodford. I'm also joined by classmates Joel Huberman, Mason Morfitt, Bill Collins, Hampton Howell, and Marcy Benstock. Our guest is Aisha Nyandoro. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Springboard to Opportunities. Springboard provides direct support to residents of federally subsidized affordable housing. Their Magnolia Mothers Trust program provides $1,000 a month for one year to black mothers living in extreme poverty in Jackson, Mississippi. So tell us about your program and then we'll have some questions. Um, so I'll go broad and then I'll come in. So I'll tell you about the organization first and then I'll tell you about the program because the program is just an initiative of a large organization. Um, so thank you to Mason for the invite. Thank you to Kent for making it happen. Um, I'm Aisha Yandoro. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Springboard to Opportunities. Springboard provides programs and services for families that live in federally subsidized affordable housing. We pride ourselves on taking a radically resident driven approach to our work. What that means is that we center the needs of families and all of the programs and services um, that we offer. That's radically different than how most social services are operated, specifically in the space of affordable housing. Um, it's typically from a hierarchical standpoint. You tell families what it is that they need or what it is that they must do, never actually trusting that families have agency or dignity or actually know what it is that they need. Um, we work in about 11 affordable housing communities, not just in Mississippi. The majority of our blueprint is Mississippi, but we also do work in Maryland and Alabama as well. And we support about 4,500 families annually with our programs and services. And prior to COVID, let me say that, how we operate is very different now since it is COVID. Um, prior to COVID, we were doing everything from after school programs, workforce development and training, youth, um, youth empowerment and development, food pantries on site. We were doing all the things. Very proud of the work that we've been doing for the last 10 years almost. Um, but in spite of all of that work that we were doing, we became concerned in 2017 that we were not moving the needle on poverty. And the reason that was, and what that means is that we were not seeing a successful matriculation out of the affordable housing complexes that we operate in. And the reason that was important to us is because it was important to our families. Um, like I said, we're an organization that's radically resident driven. And so if our families were telling us that they wanted home ownership or they wanted market rate housing. That was something that we wanted to um, ensure that they had opportunities to go about achieving. And so we were seeing that families were not moving out and it just was this ended up being the cycle of a lifetime in affordable housing, which is not what our families wanted. Um, and so whenever we are concerned or whenever we have a question, since we are an organization that's radically resident driven, we go out to our families and we ask them, what is it that we're missing? Um, I'm a researcher by training. Like I was telling y'all earlier, I went to Michigan State. So I love having to, the ability to do that aspect 
of our work to just be directly connected to families and solving complicated questions. And so we went out and we just said to families, like, you know, we know we're missing something. We know that y'all are participating in all of these other programs that we're providing. What is it that we're missing? And in every conversation, and we talked to about 80 families in this iteration at this time, with every family, the common denominator in what it was that we were missing was something that could be solved with cash. It was, I remember one mother talking about not having the money for her daughter to participate in cheerleading, even though her daughter had made the cheerleading squad and how heartbreaking that was that she had to tell her daughter that she could not participate because she just did not have the money to pay for the uniform and pay for the clinic and all of those things. Um, I remember one mom talking about having to take public transportation to community college, which was li it's literally 10 minutes away from her house. But since she doesn't have a car, she would have to take public transportation and a 10 minute commute ended up being a two hour each way commute. And so it was these stories time and time again, I was like, this is really, we're making stuff complicated that should not be complicated. If individuals are telling us that they need money, we just should give folks money. So this is in 2017 when we started thinking about this. Now cash is all sexy. Everybody's trying to get people money. But in 2017, it was not a sexy ideal at all. Um, people told oh, it's a hummingbird job by my window. Anyway, um, people told us. Uh, so in 2017, when we started thinking about this, there were no blueprints nationally. All of the work with cash disbursements had been done internationally. So not only did we not have any blueprints for what this looked like um, in a national context, the way our safety net is set up as it relates to punitive, we didn't even know we were concerned that, okay, how do we go about giving individuals cash and still protect their other benefits? So we needed a blueprint. We had to do a cost benefit analysis in those pieces. And also the way that we go about viewing poverty as it relates to moralism, individuals has really felt that we could not just give people money and trust. You know, individuals were saying that you have got to tell them what to do with the money or the money will be wasted um, because we just don't trust poor people. That's inherently how we have designed our systems based on, based on um, various patriarchal understandings and ideas of racism and sexism. Inherently, we just don't trust folk, poor people. And so we pushed back on all of that. And I was like, okay, how do we go about giving people money? Um, and I began to research figure this, to figure out what it looked like. And that's where we found a language of universal basic income. So I was like, okay, we act, this actually is a thing that can be done. We have a frame. We just have to go about now actually doing it. Um, and the first year was really, really hard. So when we started thinking about this in two, 2017 and 2018, I pulled together a task force of mothers um, to just help us uh, continue to think about it, but to really pull together a model and a blueprint for what this could possibly be. I had not raised any money for this at the time. Um, and I didn't even know if it was possible to raise money for it at the time because everyone was telling me it could not be done. Funders were saying, oh, we just can't give you money to give to people. Other folks were saying, okay, you have to have a program. You have to have um, budgeting classes. It was all, no one was operating in a space of radical imagination. Everyone was telling me what was possible. And I just was like, I'm sick of you telling me what is possible when people are telling me what it is that they need. And I run an organization and I take my position at Springboard very seriously. I run an organization that's radically resident driven. If I can't get a residence what they need, I don't need to be in this seat uh, and it's time for somebody else to have a job. And I'm not ready for that yet. Mason, I'll tell Joe I'm ready for somebody else to have my job. I'm not ready for that. Um, and so, uh, 
So we were trying to figure it out. And so I pulled together a task force of mothers. We came up with the blueprint and a model. And I was successful in raising money for an initial pilot of 20 mothers. Uh, that's all I could raise the money for. Um, in 2018, when we launched, when we launched the work, it was 20 mothers receiving $1,000 a month for 12 months, no strings attached. We were the first guaranteed income project in this country to launch. And still to this date, we are the first and only guaranteed income project to explicitly name the fact that we are supporting extremely low income Black mothers centering the conversation around inequities around race and gender in poverty. And having conversations about how we need to go about changing our policies and changing our social safety net so that we can have more equitable outcomes for all people, not just a few people. So we launched with 20 Mamas. Um, and the goal was really just to see what happens, to see if our model of supporting individuals and trusting that they have agency and centering them into the conversation about change and about their lives, how would that be effective? And y'all at work, you give people money, people do what it is that they need to do for themselves and their families. The first year with our first cohort and giving these moms um, $12,000 is what it ends up being annually. Um, we were doubling their income. The majority of our moms make less than $12,000 annually. And let me say this, the majority of our moms are working. The narrative is always that these individuals are not working. That's not true. We are in Mississippi where our federal minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour. So individuals are working one, two, three jobs. They just are not making enough to get by. They are, they are working just to survive, not to thrive. And so the first year moms got out of debt. We had over we had over $10,000 collectively in predatory debt paid back. And I think that's important to talk about predatory debt because once again, the narrative is always, oh, poor people have debt. No, middle-class people have debt. Poor people don't have debt because they can't get credit cards. What they end up having is predatory systems take advantage of them, such as payday lending service. So they end up having net debt or they have healthcare bills, or they have for-profit community colleges uh, that they get into and they end, you know, because you can use your Pell Grant to go to these institutions, but once you begin to default on your loans with these for-profit colleges, you're no longer able to get any other federal benefits and you are no longer able to transfer and go to public community college or to a four-year university or any of those pieces. So over $10,000 of predatory debt was paid off. Individuals went back to school. Individuals were able to get better jobs because they could actually take off from work and go on job interviews. That's a piece that we don't talk about either. When you are are trying to level up and you're doing job interviews and those things, a lot of people are able to do that because they have personal time off. You take a vacation day and you go do a job interview. If you don't have a vacation day and you have to take off work, that is cash out of your pocket. So for a lot of families having to do that trade-off of this cash that I know I need to pay my bills with the possibility of this job that I may not get, the trade-off is too steep. Um, so we saw all of that. We saw all of that magic happen. It was beautiful. So now we go into 2019, and we are prepared to do it all again. Um, and COVID hits, uh, and we launched a second cohort in March of 2000. And, no, that's not right. In March of 2020. So we go through the whole year in 2019. We finish up in November of 2019. We take some time to do our evaluation report and we launch our second cohort in March of 2020, right before COVID shuts down the world. Um, and we launched the second cohort with 110 women receiving. A, so we went from 20 women to 110 folks, y'all. Look at God, isn't it grand? Um, to 110 women receiving a guaranteed income. 
Um, and then not only that, we began to invest in children's savings accounts as well, because we are taking a two generation approach, wanting to make sure that we are supporting not just the needs of our families in this moment, but investing in the needs of the kids in the future. And we recognize that children's savings accounts are low interest, low lift ways in order to help kids build a future. Research shows that kids that live in extremely low income communities, if they have as little as $500 in a savings account dedicated for them, they are four times more likely to not only go to college, but be successful in college. So it's not about the amount of money, it's the fact that someone thought enough about their future and believed enough about their future to invest in their future. So in the second year, we opened children's savings accounts for every kid um, within the Magnolia Mothers Trust program. So we opened 520 children's savings accounts um, and we seeded those accounts the first year with $250. Um, and we ran it for the year during the height of the pandemic. We launched our third cohort and now we're now in a pandemic. Everyone is talking about cash and guaranteed income or universal basic income. Yang has run for president and he has made universal basic income a thing. Um, the mayors of Seed, um, Stockton, Michael Tubbs has launched Seed. So now more conversations are being had around guaranteed income. Um, and the work that we've been doing for the last three years have positioned us not only as national leaders, but as global leaders in this work. And a lot of our lessons learned individuals are saying, okay, how do we go about replicating that within our communities? And for us, that's beautiful. That's great. We want as many individuals as possible to buy into this ideal of cash without restrictions, because for us, all of these pilots and all of these localized programs are how you get to policy. So our pieces and what we care about with Magnolia Mothers Trust is how do we go about pushing back on this narrative that was quite frankly enacted with Reagan and reinforced with Clinton, with TANF? How do we go about pushing back on those narratives and actually begin to put in place policies that are most effective and most beneficial for all? Um, and so we believe that the Swiftest way to get to that is through policy change. And the quickest way to get to policy change is with mass demonstration and where you're with ripple effects or where you're making so much noise you can't be ignored. We feel that the child tax credit um, that we currently have that we were significant partners on is one way of getting to a guaranteed income. We are now advocating for it to become permanent. We think six months is not enough. Um, and so, yeah, so we're still doing our work. Magnolia Mothers Trust is in its third year. We currently we currently have 100 mothers receiving $1,000 a month. We currently have 575 babies that we put $1,000 in the child savings account this year for their future. Um, we did, at the height of the pandemic, we did over $2 million in just emergency cash disbursements for families that were not within the Magnolia Mothers Trust as well, but recognizing that our families are essential. When we shut down, they were still out there working or lost jobs immediately. So we did emergency cash disbursements last year um, of about $2 million to families. So we have set up and we are continuing to do our emergency cash fund. So we, um, to this date, we still have an emergency cash fund where families can get a one-time $500 for an emergency because we know that most Americans do not have the minimum of $400 in a savings account to address an emergency. And it's still a pandemic. And so we all are still in an emergency, whether or not we are mentally ready to reconcile with that reality or not. So I'll pause. Ken, I said I didn't have remarks. Yeah, I ain't write none of that down. It was just off the dome. That's Stay right. ready so you don't have to get ready. So there we are. <laughs> what do you, when you say affordable housing, what does that mean exactly? 
What's Affordable housing is Section 8 tax credit um, housing. So it's income-based. So whatever your income is, is how much you pay in rent. Um, so when I say affordable housing, it's federally subsidized affordable housing. It's families who typically are 200, not typically are, are 200% below the poverty index. So we are talking about families that live in extreme poverty, making on average here in, in for us in Mississippi, making on average about $12,000 annually. The number is specifically less $7,740 annually are what our families make. I know, Mason, it's ridiculous. And we expect people to live off that and, and thrive and say, how dare they not have money to save? And I'm oh, and that's the other thing, because I have a whole, y'all have so many soapboxes that I just love to get on. I get on my husband's nerves because I will get on the soapbox and I just go off. And so one of the things that people always ask me, is like, why don't you all do financial literacy and financial education? And I feel like it's so insulting because it's not that individuals do not know how to save. They don't have enough money to save. And so my pushback with that, um, is I always ask people how much do milk costs and no one ever knows how much milk costs. milk is a basic necessity no one ever knows how much milk costs I have a three-year-old I have no idea how much a gallon of milk costs I go to the store I get the milk the milk is here the mothers that we work with know how much milk costs because they have to know how much milk costs mm -hmm. so when we say why aren't they saving or why aren't you providing financial literacy it's insulting and it's not the right questions that we should be asking the question is why is it okay that in this country is still is still um, it's okay that we can pay people seven dollars and25 cents an hour and we don't see any problems with that. Well, is there any, are there any issues of uh, sort of control in terms of the program? I mean, pressure to, uh, you know, to screen the mothers to make sure you, you know, get the right mothers or. Yeah, we have that and we had that, but this is the beautiful part of our work now. And this is the beautiful part of where I am. I'm like, you know what, child, it's not your money. It's private money. Um, so you're just not gonna tell us how we're gonna operate this program. And we're just not gonna put these narratives on these moms that are not theirs. So, you know, the ideal of the right mother, I don't know what that is or who that is. Um, anyone who has a need is the right mother. And we cannot cherry pick who we believe is deserving of an opportunity. We cannot cherry pick who we believe is deserving of a good life. We are all entitled to have dreams and we are all entitled to have the support necessary for those dreams to be actualized. I, you may have said, where are you getting the money to do this? Private philanthropy, individual donors who want to liberate their capital. Um, I do a whole <laughs> lot of fundraising. <laughs> I do a significant amount of fundraising because even though it's still a hot topic um, and even though it has grown so much, um, the reality is philanthropy as it relates to organized philanthropy of foundations are still not there in just giving people, giving organizations money to give to people. So, you know, we have our partners who will fund the research or who will fund the policy work and those things, but the cash disbursements, everything that we do as it relates to giving money out the door comes from individual philanthropy. Um, and that's not equitable. You know, philanthropy doesn't flow equitably in the South. I am in Mississippi, less than 1% of philanthropic dollars from private individual philanthropy comes to the South. And I am a black woman leading an organization. Less than 1% of that 1% goes to black women who lead organizations. So yeah, 
it's the individual philanthropy. Every time some, so oh, this is another soapbox too. I have so many soapboxes, y'all. As folks are always asking me about our numbers because our numbers vary from year to year about how many mamas we can support because it just depends on how much we fundraise for that year. Um, and someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, a white male asked me, <laughs> He was like, you know, this fundraising piece, he was like, do you think it's a challenge with your skill set? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, I took $300,000 the first year and turned into $3 million. The fact yeah. that we are even doing this, it's not a testament to my skill set. It's a testament to individuals' lack of imagination. And it's a testament to the inequitable, inequitable ways in which philanthropy um, still flows. And we just don't have those conversations um, about, you know, I think there's $47 for every person that philanthropy hits here in Mississippi versus in New York, it is $14,000 per each person. So philanthropy just doesn't flow the same in the South. Among your population, Aisha, uh, I, I, I'm wondering whether there's any social controls about males living in the, uh, in the households. And um, there are no social controls on our standpoint. There are social controls as it relates to who can stay within the house, as it relates to HUD regulations and housings, um, you know, the housing regulations from property management. That is, once again, I know just enough about affordable housing and those rules to get myself in trouble. Um, I try not to discuss what happens in affordable housing and those rules because I will get myself in trouble um, because I don't always agree with some of the decision points that are made from that standpoint. So there are social controls put in place as it relates to you know, who should be head of household and who is on the lease and who can actually live within the space and, you know, whether or not we are looking at people's records and all of those things. So there are controls in place as it relates to who has access to affordable uh, housing. A uh, uh, quick follow-up on that, which is also in the same area. So uh, that's just whether any of the mothers living in and families living in HUD housing are facing the eviction crisis and 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 how is that being um, so thankfully a lot of our folks are um, so the eviction crisis is something that's happening nationwide given the fact that our communities are rent controlled as income changes, you automatically can go in and recertify. So we, have, my team has been working with our families for the last year as incomes have been changing so drastically and so radically um, to make sure that they are going in and recertifying and that they're actually keeping their paperwork because it does take a second for the recertification to actually catch up on your, um, to catch up within the system. So we're doing the advocacy and the outreach that's necessary to ensure that folks are not evicted um, because it has been it's, it has been a challenge. One, a question in the chat said, how do you go about selecting the mothers who, um, we do a lottery. So moms opt in to the lottery. We wanted to make sure that it was a trans, um, a equitable, transparent process. And we wanted to make sure that folks were actually opting in because this is considered income. So it does impact your other benefits. Um, on average, we've seen that and it has a 
um, reduction of benefits are about three to four hundred dollars across the board, which still gives you a net gain of six or seven hundred dollars as cash. That's not a subsidy that you can do whatever you want to it that, you know, it's going to hit your bank account on the 15th of every month. Um, and the moms say all of our moms say that even though they may have even though there is a reduction, they would do the program again and again and again and again because they appreciate having the cash. That penalty. Is that a monthly penalty? That is a monthly reduction. Boy, mm -hmm. that's a lot. That's too bad. But you know, it's I, those are other. So those are other conversations, and those are pieces. That's policy, and those are conversations that we're having around inequitable policies, and why we have to go about changing how our social safety net is structured. Because you're right. Uh, you know, your in, your change in income should not impact all of your other benefits immediately without allowing you an opportunity um, to lean into um, lean into that change. And so, yeah. Um, you, you've had this going for, you're in your third year now, as I understand it. From mm -hmm. Are some of the same mothers in for all three years? No, each year is a different cohort. Um, you get one opportunity. We have a waiting list. There are many needs. To, so each year we select a new group of moms from the lottery. Um, are some more successful than others? However, we go about operationalizing success. Yes, this is not a fairy tale. This is life. Mm -hmm. We are talking about individuals that we are not cherry picking. So they are coming into this from different places. But when I look at this and when I think about change, I think about the long arc of change and I think about change along a continuum of various conversations and various points. So, so I just don't look at change as, oh, how many individuals moved out of, out of affordable housing or how many people paid off debt or how many people did X, Y, Z. That's all important. But to me, that's the least sexy aspect of change. I look at change and thinking, OK, for a year, you were able to show up differently. You had more joy. You were able to spend more time with your kids. You were able to think about the future. And I know that 20 years from now, one of our babies whose mama received that will be given their valedictorian speech somewhere. And they'll talk about that year that their mom got some money from some magical place. So they won't remember the name of the place or any of that, but they'll talk about that magical year and how that changed their family and how that changed their life. So I think a year is enough. Our mamas told us a year is enough. So I stand with our mamas and trust our mamas. So. Well, how did you come up with the thousand dollars? How did you arrive at that figure? Um, so we came up with that our first year because we needed to make sure we were doing good without doing harm. Most guaranteed income projects do $500. So we knew that for our population, since this was considered income, and there would be a reduction in benefits, we needed to make sure that they still had the net gain. So that's why we came up with, and when we first started, like that, we didn't know what the reduction of benefits would be because there was no algorithm that could tell us. So we worked with economists and we came up with the best educated guess at that time of what that dollar amount should be in order to ensure um, that people you know, that we were doing good without doing harm. And so that's where we came up with the thousand dollars. Aisha, has it, has, it, has it been all good? I mean, are there any non-success stories that you can tell us about or where you had to make adjustments as you went along or what? Um, it's all good. Life is great. Yeah. Aisha, do you have other uh, cities now uh, and locales looking at your great success and uh, Adopting it as a model, it must be difficult since our country has a 
condescending and paternalistic attitude towards poor people, low income. Yeah, people. no. Um, with COVID and with with COVID and with the rise in conversations around cash, um, there are a significant number of individuals in cities and municipalities that are exploring guaranteed income right now. There are over a um, hundred guaranteed income projects and some iteration being planned, whether or not they are still trying to fundraise, whether or not their pilots are coming off the ground. Um, there are governors who are using their CARES funding in order to run guaranteed income pilots. There are mayors who are using their CARES funding to do guaranteed income pilots. So there is a lot of traction right now um, in this space with this work. But your program, it seems, is uh, is to be valued because you you don't try to tangle the people up in a lot of red tape or prejudgment. No. How no, about the mayor uh, uh, Labumba there in Jackson? Do they tie into your programs? Do they support them? Yeah, um, we're friends with Chuck Way. Chuck Way is friends with us. We are. He supports what it is that we're doing. Um, he yeah. So. I don't want to say, I don't know how you operationalize support, but he's a supporter of what it is that we're doing. He signed on as a mayor of guaranteed income. So he is definitely a supporter of the overall movement. Um, whether or not the city of Jackson will get their own guaranteed income project, I'm not sure. Right. But they got ours. I mean, yeah. and we do want to work. So he's fine. <laughs> Aisha, I wonder what you see as the likelihood of a federal universal basic income policies, similar to what Andrew Yang was, was uh, suggesting. And um, would a universal basic income um, solve the needs that you've described? Or, or do you think that there would have to be additional? Yeah. So I am actually not a proponent of universal basic income. I, so universal basic income and guaranteed income are very different. Um, universal basic income is universality. Everyone gets a check and it's ripping away our safety net structure. So all of the benefits in which people have would go away and we all just would get a nominal fee um, or nominal check. That nominal check would need to be significant if we're going to do away with housing vouchers and healthcare and Medicaid and all of those pieces. Um, guaranteed income is targeted. It is very specific. It is saying, okay, providing resources for this specific population based on whatever inequities are in place. So for example, child tax credit is an example of guaranteed income for kid, for families with kids within a certain income bracket. So that's what I support, that we be very intentional and strategic and how do we give cash without restrictions um, to those families that need it. Yeah, thanks, I didn't realize that university the concept of universal basic income included doing away with all other aspects of safety nets. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's universality. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah, it would be harmful, I feel. <laughs> right. Well, so right. Wh where do you think you'll be in like 10 years, five years from now? What's your vision? I don't know. Who, where are any of us going to be five or 10 years from now? I hope to be at this house. Uh, I hope COVID will let me leave this house. I don't know. <laughs> and you sound like an admissions uh, guy from the Harvard Business School. 
I know, I know. Yeah. So Aisha, how do we uh, get in touch with you and how do we, uh, what's the- I just put it, I dropped it in the chat. Bring door to oh, opportunities. <laughs> All right, all right. Yeah, that you can follow us. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can liberate some capital. You can do whatever your heart desires. You can liberate some stock. I mean, we take it all, y'all. We are 21st century ready. <laughs> 21st century ready. That was Aisha Nyandoro, head of Springboard to Opportunities. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.